Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Chris Stroud, and this is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics and always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the support from our generous friends at CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will, as usual, be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be Dr. Mike Manhart, Chairman of the Board of Directors of the Couple to Couple League International, to talk to us about the past, the present, and the future of natural family planning. And the geek level of NFP is going to be incredibly high on the show tonight because we also have our guest, well, not our guest, our co-host, Chris, who is... Uh, highly informed about this, about as highly informed as anybody could be. So anything you want to know about NFP, it's going to be here. Now, Chris, we each have a personal connection to the Couple of Couple League. Uh, and I think yours is more unusual than mine. Because back when my wife and I taught for CCL, I discovered that users of NFP were typically quite set on one and only one method, their method, and it was the best method. There seemed to be little crosstalk between teachers and users of many different uh, methods of natural family playing. For instance, you trained originally in the Creighton model, and uh, but you now also serve on the board of directors for Couple to Couple League. So from your unusual vantage point, how do you see this topic as important? How do you see the crosstalk between the various uh, methods out there? You know, I think many of our listeners, if they hear the intro and they hear that we're talking about NFP, there'll be a fair amount of eye rolling going on. <laughs> we know this topic. We've heard this topic. This is the... This is the church lady that comes every year and, uh, and, and shakes her finger at us and says, you're not allowed to contracept if you're Catholic, use an FP. And then some smart aleck teenager says, oh, yeah, that's Vatican roulette. Uh, or I remember in our marriage prep class, you know, there was an elderly couple. And, of course, then elderly meant. 50. Uh, and uh, they said, you should use NFP. And we have 10 kids. You know? And my wife looked at each other and thought, like everybody else in the room, why should we do anything that, that's so unsuccessful? We just showed poor, poor uh, catechesis and poor understanding. But the reality is, and I know our guest is going to share with us some terrific information, uh, NFP uh, has come a long way. It's it's not your grandparents' NFP, you might say, um, and that it is a natural way for couples to decide when they want to be pregnant and when they don't want to be pregnant. And then I, I just don't think there are many topics more relevant and more exciting uh, for young and old Catholics alike to talk about. So do you think it's unusual that you have been so friendly to, to two different uh, schools of NFP? No, no, not at all. And I think Michael shed some light uh, on that as well. I mean, NFP is no longer kind of this monolithic um, topic. I mean, I see people in my practice that that aren't Catholic, that aren't even Christian, that are really interested in NFP because they're interested in avoiding hormones or avoiding things that might be damaging to their bodies. In other words, they come at it from a completely biological argument, uh, whereas you and I might find ourselves talking about it a lot more from a, a theological uh, sure. or a bioethical. Or even very relational. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a great deal of diversity and thought and background and perspective for couples that are interested in and using NFP. So it's not unusual at all. You know, I remember back when I was in medical school in the late 80s, uh, learning about this thing called NFP. I'd never heard about it before. And actually, one of my classmates, in fact, the one that's responsible for me through our work on our cadaver and then inviting me to a a newcomer's mass in Pollock, meeting my wife. So he gave a talk in our class about NFP. Then when my wife and I were engaged, we learned about it. And I said, oh, I guess since I'm Catholic and since I'm going to be a doctor, I might as well learn how to teach it. It just seemed like, you know, A plus B equals C. And, uh, you know, we, we taught together for 10 years until I realized, thick-headed as I am, that my wife really didn't like getting up in front of groups of people and teaching. That was me, not her. <laughs> So, uh, or at least teaching about something quite so personal, perhaps. But uh, uh, yeah. yes, and using this arcane German language like Mittelschmerz and Spinbarkeit. <laughs> you know, I, I just had to get those out there before I got too far along today. And if you want to know what those are, you can just email us. Yeah, and they're, they're not the trivia question, but so don't think that you've accidentally slipped ha, up. Ha, ha. 
I would do no. You know, my my favorite comment, and every time I'm giving a talk on NFP, there's usually one guy in the audience who raises (laughs) his hand and he says, you know, wait a minute or something along those lines. You mean to tell me that my wife can know when she's fertile uh, and know when she's not fertile by looking at her mucus and taking her temperature and you know these kinds of things and we're going to decide whether or not to be pregnant based on that and you know he gives you that look like you know you've just come up with the, the most incredulous thing possible and you say actually yes you've you've just summarized nfp beautifully but then after they go through some training and learn the science and learn really an appreciation for the beauty and the complexity of the female reproductive system they have a conversion of heart and of thought. And it's a beautiful thing to watch happening. Any of our NFP instructors listening know exactly what I'm talking about. When they see those lights come on, usually, and people like us, that is to say, men, um, <laughs> you know, when, when, they, when they see that connection uh, and the synapses firing, it is an exciting thing to understand. Are we doing something um, illogical or unethical here by having three guys talking about NFP tonight, Chris? What do you think? Do you- <laughs> Does it funny. have to give us a dispensation to allow us to do this? <laughs> <laughs> it is funny how that worked out, isn't it? But usually I would say, and uh, Mike is an expert in teaching, our guests will be able to comment on it more. But yes. I think we men are the ones that usually come kicking and screaming to to this yes. discussion, uh, often led by our wives. I mean, this is just one Wisely of so. many topics like that. But no, I think we're okay as three men, husbands, fathers, grandfathers, and such. I think we're okay. Well, Chris, I'd love to get to our guests. So there's something in the way before we do that. That's our lovely medical trivia question of the day. And I titled today's category, putting all your eggs in two baskets. Of course you did. Of course I did. And you, of course, will correct me if I am wrong with the answer later on. But I looked it up online, so it must be right. So anyway, (laughs) the question is, at birth, female humans possess all the eggs they will ever have. And they will start losing these precious ova at the rate of about 10,000 per month until puberty. So by the time adolescent girls start ovulating, how many eggs do they have? And as a bonus, how many will they lose each month from that point on? They were losing 10,000 a month till puberty. After puberty, how many of those precious eggs do they lose each month? As usual, you're going to have to wait till the end of the show for the answer. But we'll be back right after the break with Dr. Mike Manhart here. I'm Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor on this exciting episode on natural family planning, past, present, and future. And Tom, I'm so honored to get to introduce my good friend and colleague, Dr. Mike Manhart. Now, he's one of those really smart doctors that has the PhD behind his name, (laughs) not like the average guys like you and I with the other two letters. But Mike got his PhD in microbiology from the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. He worked for uh, P&G for a long time as a, as a researcher and a general all-around smart scientist. Um, he's teaching couple-to-couple league with his wife, Karen, for over 35 years. He's been the executive director of couple-to-couple league. He's been the past scientific consultant for CCL. Uh, he's currently on the CCL board of directors, and he's now uh, the chairman of the board. Mike's a father of four and a grandfather of seven, and he's an all-around great guy. Mike, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Chris, it's great to be here. Tom as well. It's wonderful to see you all. Yeah, we're happy to have you with us talking about a topic that's so important to all of us. I guess we should probably start for our listeners with just a basic kind of definition, if you will. You know, what is natural family planning from your perspective? Yeah, well, natural family planning, from the simplest standpoint, is just knowledge. It's learning how to observe and record all those changes that happen in a woman's normal cycle that will tell her when she's likely to be fertile, when she's likely to be infertile and winter cycle is gonna start all over again. Um, and then a couple or a woman can use that information in whatever way they wanna do so, that. So Mike, I wanna to get to a key part of that NFP and that's the N. Uh, way back when I was doing some research in the military, I was helping CCL hopefully to write a protocol to, to figure out how the last dry day r- rule worked. And in doing that, I came in contact with a researcher at Johns Hopkins who was not a Catholic, And he said, well, you know, there's really nothing natural 
about natural family planning, but he meant it doesn't come naturally or what comes naturally is what you feel like doing. So there's that, that sense of natural. Then there's a sense of natural, like the green movement, the, the, the ecology movement. And then there's another sense of natural when we talk about human nature. So what does the term natural mean in natural family planning? Yeah, I think it means kind of two things. On the simplest level, it's natural as in the seasons of life, the seasons of the of the year. Farmers don't plant seeds in the wintertime. They plant seeds in the springtime. The female reproductive cycle has a season just like that, a spring, a summer, a fall, uh, and even a winter. Um, and so that's the simple way. The other sort of higher order idea about natural is it's based on natural law, which says we as humans are endowed with an innate understanding deep in our core of what's right and, and a call to a higher purpose. And the natural part of natural family planning from a natural law standpoint is sort of saying aspiring and responding to that deeper calling to live the way God intended us to live. Um, well, but that's really heavy duty. That's for the theologians. For me, it's kind of simple. It's understanding when you're fertile and when you're not fertile. <laughs> right. Now, you know, um, is this something, and when I say this, I mean natural family planning that uh, a bunch of old Catholic men dreamt up a couple of years ago, or has natural family planning been around for a while? Natural family planning has been around for a long time. Um, as a matter of fact, I think the earliest reference I found is about 1500 B.C., Wow. In Leviticus, there are rules in there in Leviticus about spiritual cleanliness and uncleanliness. And it says a Hebrew woman was unclean for seven days after her normal bleed, and she should wait another seven days until she considered herself clean. And that would put her about mid-cycle. And for the you know, for the Hebrew tribes who were told to populate the world, that's a good time to practice natural family planning. <laughs> um, and of course, withdrawal and abstinence, um, you know, those have been around forever, um, probably even before uh, anything was written in the Bible. Um, so it's been around a long time. I think there were some fundamental scientific breakthroughs in the 1930s that sort of transition to what we would consider modern natural family planning. And it was basically an understanding of how ovulation is related to a woman's menstrual flow. Hmm. Up until 1930, people somehow thought the menstrual flow and the, her site, her period determined when she was going to ovulate. What was discovered in the 30s was it's actually the other way around. It's the ovulation that drives the event. Um, and, and menstruation comes about two weeks after ovulation every time. Um, and so the variability in the cycle comes between menstruation and the next ovulation. And I want to clarify something just for our listeners. When you mentioned uh, two things have been around for centuries, and that is withdrawal and abstinence, withdrawal would not be considered a form of natural family planning, correct? Correct. Correct. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we always try to be careful when we're throwing terms around on the show because it's so easy to do in our medical jargon. But maybe you could walk listeners through, uh, you know, the fact that NFP is sort of a, uh, an umbrella term, you might say, that really encompasses a lot of different approaches to achieving or avoiding uh, pregnancy. Maybe you could kind of give a, a high level overview of what some of those methods are. Oh, yeah. Um, the easiest way to think about the various methods, they have all kinds of names, um, but they kind of fall into one of five categories. They're a calendar-based system, something like the original rhythm system that was, you know, Leo Letts promoted in the U.S. in the 40s, or the standard days method, which is more popular. And that basically predicts the fertile women, the fertile window, the, the time a woman can conceive, based on the length of her menstrual cycle, when her averages are. That's the calendar-based methods. Then there's what we would call cervical mucus or cervical fluid-based methods. That's the daily observation of these normal discharges that can be observed throughout the day. Um, there would be a temperature-only method. Um, and the, the current manifestation of that is, a, is an app called Natural Cycles, which has FDA approval as a contraceptive and as a con and aid to conception. Um, and it uses a temperature-only algorithm to kind of define the fertile window. Then there are the symptothermal methods, which combine mucus and temperature and some other measures sometimes. Um, and then the newest sort of classifications are what we call symptohormonal methods, which make use of the ability today with our technology to do at-home measurement of hormone metabolites in the urine. 
And basically, women pee on a stick like a pregnancy test, except they do it daily to understand what their hormone levels are. Um, so there's kind of five broad classifications. Within that, there are several named methods underneath that, some of which have a lot of good evidence to support them scientifically, others which are little more than made up in somebody's backyard and then applied to an app and sold for free in the iTunes store. Sure. So, Mike, how is mainstream medicine coming? And I'm thinking like the CDC, the World Health Organization, in terms of how they refer to these methods of natural family planning. Have they caught up with the rest of us? <laughs> um, there has been some improvement. I mean, they used, they used to talk about natural family planning methods all lumped together. They took everything from the surveys um, and they, talk, they looked about it, unintended pregnancies in these surveys and then they lumped them all together. And what the surveys found is that over 85% of the women were using what they called rhythm. Now, that may not be the rhythm method that's actually properly taught about when to define the fertile women. It may be sort of the more blue-collar rhythm, which is, oh, I ovulate on day 14, so I'll abstain a day before and a day after, and I'll be okay, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which actually optimizes the time to, uh, for unintended pregnancy in many cases. So. <laughs> um, but there has been some movement and some improvement. The, the CDC does now acknowledge that there's a range of effectiveness for different methods from anywhere from 2% unintended pregnancy up to 23%, I think is their official wording. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the materials that are easily available and easily accessible have not been updated and they're still reflecting the old sort of lump combined number of about, you know, one in four women will get pregnant unexpectedly if they use the method. Um, and really, for unfortunately, that's the kind of number that gets thrown around in Cosmopolitan at the grocery store checkout lines and, you know, the online surveys that are not really aware of things. Um, but the modern methods of fertility awareness, natural family planning do really have good efficacy. Um, and in many cases, comparable to many of the other common used, commonly used um, contraceptive methods that are out there. Yeah, in many cases, better, not even comparable, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, the uh, the lack of effectiveness, or I guess I should say the ineffectiveness of popular pharmacologic means of contraception is often, it's so understated that, it, you know, that, that people get pregnant on birth control pills all the time. I know in my practice of almost 30 years, I've, I've completely lost track of how many children I've delivered from contracepting couples, um, right. but that's never talked about. It's sort of a hidden, dirty little secret, isn't it? Right, right. Well, there was a statistic one year that there's an annual report that the CDC puts out called the National Survey of Family Growth, where it, rep it looks at a representative population of U.S. women and asks them thousands of questions about their lives and what's going on. And, and a lot of these are related to fertility. Um, and they did a breakout one year that showed that teenagers on hormonal contraception have about a 50% unintended pregnancy rate. <laughs> it's not because the pill doesn't work, because teenagers forget to take the pills. Right. <laughs> that, that table disappeared. It was presented for just a little while, um, and a couple of lucky people happened to see it in the 70s, but then it was quickly hidden because, mm. as you write, as you say, Chris, it's often not talked about. So, Mike, what are the trends in the use of NFP by people? Like over the last decades, has it increased, decreased, stayed the same? Yeah, actually, when you look at the national data, these national survey of family growth, that's done periodically. You know, in the 60s, um, the rhythm method counted for about 11% of married women were using that method. That compares to about 20% who were using a condom. And at that time, about 24% were using the pill. Fast forward to today, we see a lot less. Um, we see only about 3% using rhythm or another form of natural family planning uh, exclusively. Um, I did come across a recent paper, though, that went back and looked at that data, um, and, and it showed that um, when you take people who use multiple methods, so they might combine a fertility awareness method with, with withdrawal or with condom use, um, that number gets up to about 4% um, in the most recent data. Um, but it is vanishingly small, I will have to admit, um, hmm. which is sad um, because it's a highly effective for spacing children um, and it has all kinds of other collateral benefits um, that the rest of the uh, 
pharmacological approaches don't do and actually do some damage um, with respect to that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but the data would suggest that the population of NFP users of any method, it, it's not growing, is it? It's not growing. However, um, fertility tracking apps and period trackers are wildly popular. Um, hmm. And I just saw a survey, again, it was a representative sample of, of reproductive age women, and that showed that there were 19% of women who were using a fertility tracker at least once a month. So that means they were using it with some regularity. That doesn't mean they were using it for NFP, but they were interested in following their cycles. That compares to 14% of U.S. women who are currently taking an oral contraceptive wow. and 18% of U.S. women who are currently sterilized. So while NFP as a discipline is unfortunately very small, I think the unmet need and the underlying interest is, is hugely popular and is being demonstrated through the popularity of these fertility tracking apps. Um, women want to understand why their bodies behave they do, the way they do. Sure. Um, and, you know, organized medicine may want to treat fertility as a disease and make it go away. Uh, <laughs> But women who go, who go down that path, they don't like it. You know, 70% of women who start an oral contraceptive in a year will stop because they either experience side effects or they were afraid of experiencing side effects. Um, and the vast majority of those experienced a problem. They don't like that. Um, they mm -hmm. want to understand what's going on. And I think these fertility tracking apps and all, unfortunately, they're not very good at what they do. They, but I think it it um, reflects a real deep desire um, among people to understand why their bodies act the way they are um, and how can I, um, how can I manage yeah. this? You know, it's interesting. I would, I would say in my experience, and it may be hard to demonstrate in a survey, but I think a lot about the husbands in NFP couples and the different conversations that I have with them as opposed to the non-NFP husbands. You know, the, the, the example that always comes to mind is the look on a man's face when you say to him, in front of his wife here in my office, what are your wife's cycles like? And, you know, he immediately finds the need to study his feet and, and look at it, you know, uh, as, as opposed to the NFP husband will say, oh, well, you know, she has about six to seven day cycles. They start medium, they get heavier, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, he's full of data. Um, and it, when you say the word understanding, I, I would agree with you. I think people, it's been a black box for too long and people are desperate to try to understand. And, you know, I mean, even to people that aren't geeky like us, it's very cool. I mean, this is, this is fascinating <laughs> physiology. Um, and so, yeah, I, I could see that the apps are really, you know, helping people get something that they're just desperate to get. I guess now the job will be, let's make them better. So maybe they actually learn something. Yeah. Yeah. So Mike, with so many forms of NFP, if a couple wants to use one of those five that you listed, how do they choose what's best for them? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and, it, and it really boils down to, it's kind of like buying a car. The one you like and the one you're going to use is the one that's right for you. <laughs> okay. uh, the problem is, how do you decide what's right for you? Okay, so first of all, I would say it's important you use a method that's got some good data behind it. Um, mm. You don't want to be the guinea pig to find out if this method really does prevent pregnancy, if you're trying to use it to prevent pregnancy, or if you're using it to achieve pregnancy. Um, you know, so find a good evidence-based method, and there's, there's several other out there. The next thing is understand what's involved. Do you, do you think what's asked for by the method is something that you can integrate into your daily life? When we teach NFP, we all, you know, it sounds like a lot. I got to take my temperature every day and I have to pay attention to my cervical fluid. But when we remind them, well, you go to the bathroom every day and you use tissue paper. So, you, you know, it's not like you're doing anything new. And all of us eventually did learn to brush our teeth two or three times a day. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, so you need to consider like what's involved and, and can that fit into your lifestyle? Um, some people may think, you know, this is just too much to do. So I'll take something simpler. Um, and there are options that way. Uh, and then the third thing I would say is ideally, can you find a place for some ongoing support? Because everybody has a cycle that's not typical or you just get it and you know, what's going on here. Um, and so it's really critical to find somebody 
uh, or find a source of good, re reliable information. So if there's a teacher of a particular method in your area, that might be a good place to look um, just because you'll have that support and that help. Um, it's not a really good do-it-yourself project, uh, particularly to get started. Um, so having a mentor woman or a mentor couple is a huge benefit. Massively beneficial. Um, particularly, even once you get past all the rules stuff, there's the whole bit about living the NFP lifestyle as we talk about it, right? Because if, you, if you're using natural family planning, you're going to quickly understand that your wife looks incredibly attractive when she's fertile. <laughs> um, and you need to be incredibly careful about what you say toward the yes. end of her cycle, because what will be funny, you know, at the beginning of the cycle will be the very thing that she wants to bite your head off at the end of the cycle. <laughs> so, Imagine it. so, you know, just having some support and resources around that can often be helpful. Um, what about the woman whose cycles are not regular or the woman who's breastfeeding? These kind of throw a big monkey wrench into regular cycles. How do the methods account for that? Yeah, well, the methods that use daily observation are actually pretty good at covering irregular cycles. Um, and so those would be the, the mucus-only methods like the Creighton model or the Billings model or the symptothermal methods or the Marquette model, which is the symptohormonal uh, model. Those are pretty good because they, they ask Basically, how does today's fertility status compare to yesterday's? And is it getting more fertile? Is it getting less fertile? Is it the same? It's basically, it's kind of like that, um, the Cars movie where the, the pickup truck was driving by looking in the rearview mirror all the time, right? <laughs> so how does today compare <laughs> to yesterday? Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so the daily observation methods do a pretty good job with your regular cycles and cycle variability. And cycle variability is just a normal part of life. I can't tell you how many college sophomores we see in an NFP class in the spring or engaged spring wedding couples in the spring who suddenly have, you know, I've always had a cycle 28 to 32 days and this one's 37 days. What's wrong? Well, the florist called and said the delivery couldn't be there, or I had a big bio exam that I had to study for. <laughs> so it happens. So um, the daily observation methods really work well for that. With respect to pregnancy, that's kind of a whole different physiologic phenomenon. When a woman is breastfeeding, um, she goes into what's called lactational amenorrhea. Because of the fact that she's nursing the baby, her reproductive system naturally shuts down because it says, we're feeding this one. It's not a good time to create a new one, right? And so, um, and then depending on the frequency and the extent of that breastfeeding, she may experience a prolonged period of infertility. But that depends on a number of factors. Um, you know, how often the baby suckles, how complete the nursing is, how many times, et cetera. So, well, uh, well, Mike, that's a great, uh, great point to take a break. We're going to be right back with Dr. Mike Manhart here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor with Dr. Mike Manhart talking about NFP past, present, and future. So, Mike, I know that you get asked this question because I certainly get asked it a lot. And that is some version of this. I have a serious reason to avoid pregnancy. Maybe chemotherapy for cancer. Maybe I'm taking a medication that is known to cause birth defects, uh, like in Tom's dermatology world. We've talked about that before. Yes. And then the, then the woman will say to me, so it makes sense that I should probably not use NFP, right? <laughs> How do you answer that? Yeah, well, I would say, uh, first of all, if you've already got a serious medical condition and you're on some pretty heavy-duty medications, it could could in themselves cause some very serious side effects. Adding more medications is probably not the smartest thing to do, <laughs> right? Um, and the truth is there's only a narrow limited time in any cycle when a woman can get pregnant. And so the pragmatic advice that we often give is abstain until after ovulation because most of the unexpected pregnancies happen in that pre-ovulatory infertility phase, and then that particular cycle happens to have an earlier than expected ovulation. And so that's, you know, baby number three or baby number four or whatever. Um, so we often say just abstain until after you've ovulated and you know you're in that post-ovulation infertile phase, and that would be defined by any number of rules from any of the different methods. Mm. Um, and then we would say, add another day. To the rule. So if it says wait four days till after the peak cervical mucus, just wait till the fifth day 
after mm. peak cervical mucus or for a symptothermal, you know, it's three temperatures and three mucus dry up days. So wait four days uh, mm. or wait five days if you're really concerned. Um, sure. Um, and actually, if a woman has you know, got a serious medical condition, there's a whole host of other things that are going on. And probably the most loving thing her husband can do for her is to say, honey, we don't have to have intercourse for my, you know, for my sake right yeah. now. What's going on with you is much more important. So I think it sends a signal when you're saying, okay, we'll just limit the time when we can have intercourse. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I, you know, Hollywood would tell us that married couples are having sex in the elevators, at, you know, in public buildings. <laughs> but as three old married guys, I think we can all attest it turns out that's just not true, <laughs> that couples are abstaining a lot um, and maybe more than they think because they, they have a Hollywood view. But the reality is, as you pointed out, there's a very brief window. And so they're only going to be abstaining a little uh, and maybe just a little beyond their natural abstinence rate from fatigue and life and work and travel uh, anyway. But it really becomes sort of a, a state of mind more than anything else. But yeah. that reminds me, I mean, how do you see NFP users as couples? How do you see NFP affecting uh, their marriage? Oh, I think actually that's the big, that's the big, huge benefit in natural family planning. I mean, spacing mm. babies is great. That's wonderful. Um, but I think the real benefit is the impact it has on the relationship. And this has been shown time and time again in all kinds of studies. Um, but Generally, you know, couples will acknowledge that abstinence can be hard and it's a challenge and it's not easy at times, but overall it's really better for their marriage. And I like the analogy of, you know, how many Olympic gold athletes took Wednesdays and Fridays off because they didn't feel like they needed to work that much. You know, no, they worked seven days a week for four years to get to that gold medal. Uh, and if you want your, your marriage to be a gold medal marriage, you know, work at it. Um, and, I, and the surveys that we've done um, among, you know, large groups of NFP users, you know, it's, it's 70, 80 percent of people feel that it's benefited their marriage. And the way it benefits is an improved communication between the spouses. Even when they say they were good communicators beforehand, they feel like they can communicate more. And, of course, the joke is if we can talk about mucus, we can talk about anything. Right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, and they have an increased intimacy. Hmm. Um, highly satisfied with their, their sex life and their frequency of sex. Mm -hmm. And actually the objective data out there show that more intercourse does not lead to more satisfaction. It does plateau. And hmm. it's about once a week or so is where the kind of plateau hits. Um, so the Hollywood moment, I think it's going to be more physically tiring than, than emotionally satisfying. Um, if we really live <laughs> the way it is in Hollywood. Um, it it's interesting that you say communication because in my mind, that's that's the big difference between contracepting couples and NFP using couples is the conversations that have to take place. You know, so if a couple is serious about avoiding pregnancy, they're going to have to have a daily conversation uh, about what are our goals and where are we. And I, I just don't think those same conversations take place within a contracepting relationship. Right. No, the, the contraception mentality, it kind of puts it away. It puts it, it just makes it go away. So you never right. have to have the conversation. And as yeah, we all know, point. there is never a good time to have a child. You will never <laughs> have enough money. You will never have enough time. <laughs> right. Um, but the nice thing about NFP is it flips that equation. It flips that question upside down and, and mm. it really challenges the couple to say, why isn't this a good time to have a baby? Um, we're wired that way. I mean, mm. we are most attracted to our spouses when they're fertile. Um, yes, right. And they, God only knows why, but they find us attractive in their fertile <laughs> lives as well. It is a mystery. Yeah, you have stumbled <laughs> on one of the great mysteries of the universe, yes. But yes. Well, if we think, Mike, sort of the future is now concept, and you mentioned you know, a lot of different ways to know that ovulation has passed. Another way to say that is the remainder of the woman's cycle is safe, so to speak. Um, what's happening with technology and you referenced uh, urinary hormone testing to determine when fertile times are. What's happening in the science world there now? Yeah, there's a lot of things happening and there's many different kind of approaches going on. I would say I think that the whole urinary hormone field is going to be kind of the next step going on. 
what we have today um, with things like the clear blue monitor and the Marquette method are, are what we would call qualitative measures. Okay, the, the test strip gives you a yes, no. Okay, based on some threshold level that's hardwired into the into the test strip. Um, and those are very useful and you can use that. But what is literally, you know, just now emerging on the marketplace are quantitative measurements of, of hormones. And so we can measure luteinizing hormone quantitatively. So we know how many million international units per ml there are um, on, on this day and the next day. And we can kind of track that. Um, we can also measure estrogen metabolites in the urine. So we know what's going on there. Um, and the quantitative progesterone is on the horizon. Um, so I think we will see a, a, um, an important step change there. And that might lead to a significant improvement in the overall methods. Hmm. Um, I heard a presentation um, actually at this year's Catholic Medical Association that was looking at a, a new app that quantified um, luteinizing hormone and, and E3G or estrogen metabolites. Um, and they, they quite clearly showed that once you had a level over 150, you were clearly within 24 hours of ovulation. Mm -hmm. But if the level was below 150, you were still not there yet. And so that might be a better way to predict more closely when actual ovulation is going to happen um, and might, might simplify be, things. Do you think these might be accurate enough that in the future CCL might integrate this? with mucus and temperature observations? Oh, yes, I think so. I, I think there's going to be a revolution in the, in the methods. The technology is just there. It's, it's good. I don't think it will always go away because there are costs to this thing. Um, and for some women, it doesn't give the incremental information that's needed. Um, but for women with irregular cycles or underlying subfertility due to PCOS or endometriosis or something like that, these could be huge benefits. Mm. Um, I also think it would just simplify the women today who have to go and get blood drawn at, at peak day plus three and peak day plus seven. They can do it from peak day minus four to peak day plus five and have a daily graph um, that they could then share with their physician. Um, and that might really help diagnosis and treatment of some of these fertility conditions um, that get in the way of people trying to have babies. So I think that's, that's a big area that's coming along. And I also think just the whole concept of wearables, you know, you can get your basal body temperature from your Apple watch. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and, you know, I see the ads on TV, the diabetics can wear the patches and it gives them their insulin reports sure. on their phone. Right. I suspect that we will in the not too distant future have wearables that will detect hormone levels, circulating hormone levels that will tell us exactly where we are in the reproductive cycle. Those aren't on the, you know, a few years from now, but I suspect they may well come. Um, and that will, that will basically simplify life. You don't have to remember to observe. The machine will be doing it for you as you wear it. Um, yeah. Um, but it, so it's I think interesting. Those are kind of the two big areas where we'll see dramatic revolution. I think one of the neat, for lack of a better word, things about NFP is um, even with those technological advances, it will always require an active decision on a couple's part. So we're talking about a better way to say to the woman, you're no longer fertile or you are fertile. But even as we get perfect at saying that, which will never be perfect, but even as we approach perfect, it will still require a couple to look at each other and say, are we trying to achieve pregnancy or are we trying to avoid pregnancy? And it's going to require some discipline and self-control. Um, certainly there are some people who would say, oh, well, then I'm going to contracept, <laughs> which, is, uh, which is misfortunate because uh, they're, they're missing really, I think, the fundamental point. But as we get better and better at telling people about their fertility, uh, they should get better able to make those decisions in a way that reflects their values and their goals. Right, right. It's you know, exciting. NFP provides a lot of information. It gives you great knowledge. But what you do with that knowledge is absolutely critical. Um, and that's where the wonder is. I mean, you, you can really build your relationship, um, make in, informed decisions. Um, and yeah, you know, I mean, everybody's experienced it, right? You, you know, the first time you've been away from the little kids in five years, um, you're all alone and you're looking at your chart and it's, well, we might be fertile. You know, 
So that's what Karen and I used to call, we'll let God decide moments. <laughs> <laughs> and I think what people don't understand today, I mean, we, we get so technologically involved in, in this whole notion of fertility and everything. And we talk about all these amazing technologies that are somewhat suspect from an ethical and moral standpoint. But, you know, it makes it sound like getting pregnant is like flipping on a light switch. Right. But the reality is the highest day of probability is the day or two just before ovulation. And that's only about a 30 to 35% probability of conception. So what I say in my classes when I teach NFP is you are no better than a Hall of Fame major league hitter um, when it comes to deciding when you're going to get pregnant. <laughs> because it's really, you know, it's, it's not, most of us think it might be 100% likelihood, but it's not mm. like flipping on a light switch. Um, I really appreciate the way that you two talk about the fact that NFP isn't just for avoiding pregnancy. Mm. It's for deciding in the moment, you know, it's a, it's a game time decision, right? And it can also be used to help achieve pregnancy, which, you know, none of the other artificial methods really can do, can they? No. And what's missing, I think, sadly, in among young married contracepting couples is the, the appreciation of what Mike is just describing, this, this beauty, this miracle that either happens or doesn't happen, despite your best efforts in many cases. <laughs> but we could, we could talk about the science all day, which is fascinating. But at the end of it all, it is miraculous that anyone ever conceives. Um, I always find it frustrating when maybe I've treated endometriosis in a couple. And when I see them back after their surgery, I, I'm thinking, so you want to be pregnant now, right? And they say, no, we're going to, we're going to contracept a few years. Oh, you know, and I, I want to sort of say to them, and I usually do say to them, you seem to think you're in control. <laughs> uh, and, and the reality is they're not. And we, we know that, but the world isn't telling them that, uh, unfortunately. Mike, what do you think can be done to increase the appeal of natural family playing to more young couples? Um, I honestly kind of think there's two answers to this. Um, and one is a very Catholic answer and one is a, is a clearly non-Catholic answer. Okay, so the, the Catholic answer is today only about 6% of the couples who get married in the church even get exposed to NFP in terms of really understanding what it is. And so, you know, I'm, and I see NFP from a Catholic as a gateway drug to Catholicism. Um, and so, I, you know, because because if you can get it, if you can get the church's understanding about why they talk about it this way with NFP, you can get just about anything else that the church is talking about. Amen. And I'm sure. no philosopher, that's for sure. But <laughs> you know, it's yeah. so you know, I think I'd like to see a lot more priests, bishops, dioceses say, this is just what you have to do. We make people go to baptism classes. We make people go to confirmation classes. We make people do pre-cana stuff for marriage prep, but we let them off for the, probably the most important thing, which is understanding how to live their life as a married couple as God calls them to live mm. um, in concert with that natural law and that natural rhythm that they have um, and how to embrace that and deal with it. You know, yeah, it's a cross a lot of times, but it's also an incredible blessing at times. Mm. So that would be one track there for sure. Um, 6%, you know, of the people is just that's pathetic um and um the other way i would say is we need to take our collective experience from the nfp organizations you know ccl has been around for 50 plus years 50 years now um you know we've taught hundreds of thousands of couples we need to take that experience and move it to the secular world reach mm -hmm. out to those people um and one of the ways Couple to Couple League is doing that is through this thing called the Fertility Science Institute, which we just launched in conjunction with our 50th anniversary. And this is really intended to be a one-stop online shop for all things related to fertility. Um, and it's not just for engaged and married couples who want to practice NFP because they're getting married. We have things for mothers and daughters, and we'll, we're building things for fathers and sons. So teenagers can learn to track their cycle and predict when their period's going to come so that they know when to take the right equipment to school and they don't have mm. to face the embarrassment of, ask, of going to the nurse's office. Mm. Um, and they can certainly begin to appreciate who they are as a woman um, and how wonderfully they're made, which is critical to, to what we're trying to do. And then we've got things for postpartum 
uh, couples because that's a difficult transition stage. We've got stuff for people at the end of their reproductive years, the perimenopause stages. Um, we've even got access for special needs, people who have likely fertility problems that are undiagnosed. We've got some mechanisms to get them connected to a physician who will actually take the time to read a chart, make a diagnosis and help them along rather than just saying, oh, well, we'll just do in vitro when you want to get pregnant and we'll just sterilize you in the meantime. Um, so, um, so we think that actually reaching out to the couples with that information and packaging it in a way that's attractive and interesting um, will be highly successful. Um, so we want to leverage what, what's already happening with the fertility tracking apps. Um, you know, everybody's already interested. Now we just have to say, well, let me tell you a little bit about what this really means and what's really going on here um, and how wonderful this is. So, Mike, in our last minute here, how can listeners access this and what final words of wisdom do you have for our audience? Final words of wisdom. Well, I would say NFP is probably the best kept secret on the planet. <laughs> for two reasons. One, it, it helps women understand how wonderful they are and their basic inherent dignity and what a magnificent gift they are to the, to the rest of us. Um, and two, the benefit that it can be to couples in terms of really living out the vocation of marriage that they can be called to live. And for us, it's been, I mean, I'm sure that I've survived 40 years of marriage in large measure because I had NFP to fall back on and it didn't let me do stupid things <laughs> that I wanted to do. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, what to do, where to go, I think there's lots of resources out there. Couple to Couple League has information, ccli.org, that's a place to start. The FertilitySciencesInstitute.org, that's linked on the CCL webpage, or you can just type it in as well. That's a great place to start. Um, I would actually put a plug in for factsaboutfertility.org, the, the organization run by Marguerite Duane. There's a lot of good stuff there. She's actually got a very good front page primer on what is charting. If you just click on the what is charting, you'll get there. Well, Mike, you have shedded some terrific light, uh, especially with your scientific background, uh, on a beautiful topic. And I know our listeners have benefited from listening to you. Thank you so much for your work at CCL International. And thank you for spending a little bit of time with us here at Dr. Doctor. Oh, it's been great. I love listening to you guys. It's fun to now be a part of it, at least in a small way. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor and welcome to the medical trivia question answered. This is a good one. Putting all your eggs in two baskets. So Tom, to recap, you know, women are born with a fixed number of eggs um, and then they start losing those eggs right away. In fact, they lose a lot of them before they're even born while they're still uh, an embryo. But your question is a great one. By the time adolescent girls began ovulating, how many eggs do they have left? And how many will they lose each month uh, from that ovulation or uh, our adolescence on? Great question. And the data says they have about 300 to 400,000 eggs, about a third of a million when they start ovulating. And then instead of losing 10,000 a month, they'll only lose about 1,000 per month until they have spent their last egg, which is called what, Chris? Well, once you spend that, it's a currency. And once you've spent your last egg, that's called menopause. That's all it is. Yeah. yeah. And then I mean, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> if men made sperm as well as women made eggs, the planet could look a lot differently. It um, would. <laughs> but men make oh. millions and millions and millions of sperm all the time. Most of them are even defective. Um, yet every roughly 28 days, a woman releases a mature, virtually perfect egg. They're much more efficient in their work than we are. Yes, they are. And so, Chris, this brings us to the top three takeaways of the day. What are your top three? Well, it's hard to pick. Mike is such a great guest, and he did such a great job of, of bringing the science, you might say, yes. uh, in. I, I think one of them has to be that NFP, natural family planning, is really based on the science of reproductive physiology. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not guessing. It's not Vatican roulette. It's not counting up days on the moon. Uh, it's really based on the science uh, of physiology, and that's important to remember. Um, also on my top three list, this idea that NFP really is pro-marriage. I mean, Mike even quoted some, uh, some research showing that 70 to 80% of couples will report that they communicate better uh, if they're NFP users. 
um, that it is pro-relationship and pro-marriage in a way that a contracepting couple could just never hope to experience. Um, and then lastly, and I think probably more most importantly, and that is NFP is not just for Catholics anymore. Um, I mean, we, <laughs> we could talk about the, the, the theology and the wisdom in Mother Church and teaching that contraception is wrong. Uh, we could also talk about the biology of it. So there are plenty of great reasons to go learn about NFP, whether they're theological or biological uh, or both. And we'd like listeners to go for more information to ccli.org or fertilityscienceinstitute.org, as Mike recommended. I'm amazed by that Fertility Science Institute. That sounds like a godsend. Yeah, it really is. I think it's going to be a game changer in the NFP world. Listeners, thank you again for being with us for yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of our show with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And you can find all of our episodes on our website. That's drdoctor.org. And for those of you that want to dive a little deeper into some of the topics, uh, check out our website also for bonus links and information on posts of our guests and some of their publications uh, and the like. Just click latest at the top of the main page. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.